0: just a few weeks ago ago it is the word copacetic uh, some of you yeah john you know that word some of you know that word it's not a word you would use it's like a it's like a reading word it's not like a using word it's not only a word you don't use in normal conversation but it's also a word that it describes when things go absolutely to plan things go absolutely perfect and honestly is life really like that I mean, it's more like the ping-pong balls where you're off to this side, off to that side, and then, you know, sometimes you're flying, sometimes you're, you're falling. And, you know, that's especially true, I think, in relationships. Now, I learned about relationships like a lot of y'all did, uh, not in my nuclear family, but in my new family when I got married. And in particular, I learned about relationships through the vehicle of camping, I married someone who loves camping. Now, not glamping. You know, that didn't even exist when we got married. But we're talking about that that kind of, you know, pitch the tent, sweat and not shower, eat with bugs, sleep on the ground, poison ivy kind of camping. That's the kind of camping that my dear wife Susan loves to do. And I have to say that it never worked out. Now, I've tried. In 47 years, I've been camping with Susan four times. I think that's a pretty fair chance, isn't it? Four times. And every single one of them has ended in disaster. Uh, I have been almost frozen to death in the Appalachian Mountains. I almost drowned in Beaver Bend Park in Oklahoma. I waded through a swollen river in the pitch darkness of night in the Tapuiz of Venezuela, and then I was pretty much sure that our marriage was over at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Now that was the one that was the last one I think that we did. We, We went to the Grand Canyon just to stand like most tourists do, the normal people who stand on the side, they look out, you know, and they go, wow, that is a big hole. And then, you know, as we went around, you know, to we were there for several days, about three days, and we said, well, you know, what else can we do? And the park ranger said, well, you can drive around to the other side and you can look into the hole from that side. And Susan said, well, let's go camping. Let's go down into the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Now, most of you would know that's usually not possible. You can't just walk up to the Grand Canyon and say, I want to go camping today. But unfortunately... They had stopped all the mules going down, and so they were all open all the way down to the bottom. And so they said, sure, you can go. Have you ever done anything like this before? And I said, well, three times I've done things like this, and it's never worked out. But Susan really wanted to go, and so they, they said, well, well, we'll make a reservation for you at Indian Springs, and then down at the bottom, and then you'll come back to Indian Springs, and you'll be at the top. And I said, well, we don't have that much time. That's like four days. We only have two days. She said, have you ever done this kind of thing before? And I said, well, three times, and it's ended in disaster. But we think we walk a lot, we hike, we can do that. So with much misgiving, she gave us the permit to walk down one day and camp at the bottom, and then the next day to walk back out. Now, folks, this was Susan's idea. (laughs) And I remember one of the last things the woman told us as we were heading down there was, it takes about twice as long to get out as it does to go down. And now, that became very important to us as we were 10 hours into the downtown, the down trip. We were almost at the bottom, and we came to that point where Susan, both of us were just sweaty, tired, it was hot, it was summertime. Susan just stopped and looked at me and said, I don't think I can do this. Now, now, you can check with Susan. This is all very much, you know, a verbatim account. I don't think I can do this. She said, I I don't think I can hike 20 hours tomorrow to get out of here. Now, me being the understanding, loving husband that I am, I turned to her and I said, this was your idea. (laughs) What do you think we're going to do at this point? It is certainly a lot further to go back up than it is to just go on and see if we can find the campground. So after some tears, both hers and mine, we finally trudged ahead. We got there. Obviously, we survived. We're here today. And we found out something about ourselves is that we walked downhill very slowly so that when we walked out, we walked out in the same amount of time that it took us to walk in. So I was, I was pleased and she was pleased that we, we made that discovery. You know, now, that, that little trip taught me about relationships. Now, you think I'd know by then, you know, how fragile they are, how easy it is to get cross with each other. When, you know, relationships can get a little bit tense, a little bit tight, things are not really going right. Now, the good thing, of course, when that happens in marriage is that it's fun to make up, and you really do learn something about a, kind of a new perspective into your relationship. But you also understand that, That same thing that applies to our relationship with one another applies to the Lord. That is to say there are difficult times, times when things are strained, times when things are not right with the Lord. And we realize that we need to have that right relationship with the Lord because that's what really helps us through those relationships with with one another, whether it's in marriage or with our children or with our friends. It is that right relationship with the Lord that gives us a foundation that all of us really, truly need. Now, here are two caveats. I say it's just like our relationship with the Lord with two exceptions. The first one is this. When our relationship with the Lord is strained, guess what? We are always at fault. Now, husbands, you may feel like that's true with your wife as well. But with the Lord, it is always we who have wandered. Israel was the one that went after other lovers. Israel was the one that committed idolatry all throughout the Old Testament, following after other lovers. You know, the first commandment that God gave to the children of Israel, we have the second giving of the commandment here in Exodus 34. The first one was, you shall have no other gods before me. What's the second one? Much the same. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And by the time God had given them the Ten Commandments the first time, guess what? They had already broken at least three of those commandments down below with the golden calf. So contemptible was this before God that Israel was commanded not to mention foreign gods, not to make alliances with nations that had foreign gods, to destroy the nations in the promised land that worshiped foreign gods, and to put to death any Israelite Who made a foreign God? Idolatry was the prominent sin of Israel in the Old Testament. People who worshiped these gods were characterized as deceived, as shamed, as weak, and as foolish. Psalm 115 tells us this. They were foolish because their gods are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but don't speak. They have uh, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Foolish. They're also deceived. Jeremiah tells us, deceives their Jeremiah that every man is, now I love this, this is the ESV translation, every man is stupid. Jeremiah just cut right to the chase. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by idols for his images are false and there's no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. First caveat. When we strain our relationship with God, it is because we are almost always at fault, following after false gods, idols of the heart. The second caveat is this. God is always the one who initiates the move towards reconciliation. Now, I was uh, was first a, a Baptist in ministry up in Kentucky, And years ago, they had a campaign, a campaign in in Kentucky, Louisville, called I Found It. Now, I think it was in other parts of the United States, for those of you who are about my age. Everybody had bumper stickers. I'm not a real big fan of, you know, bumper sticker theology, you know, honk if you're Amish, things like that. You know, I think that, you know, bumper stickers are just a bad way to try to communicate theology. But that was a terrible way. I Found It gives the impression that God is waiting out there for us to find him somewhere when the truth of the matter is that God is the God of the second chance. God is the one who is actually, literally looking for us. He is the one who is searching for us. That's why you have Exodus 34, where God who had graciously given his children the Ten Commandments before the ink was dry, so to speak, they had broken them, and God is here giving the children of Israel a second chance, a second tablet, a second giving of the Ten Commandments. The question is, That is, if God, as it says here in Exodus 34, 4, Moses cut the two stones uh, like the first. He rose in the morning. He went up to the mount, Sinai, as the Lord commanded him and took in his hand the two tablets. So the question is, what do you do, what do we do with a second opportunity? What do we do when God, you know, helps us pick that ball up off the ground, put it back up, try to get our lives right with God? What do we do to get things right with God. Well, let me suggest this morning three things from Exodus 34 that you and I need to do to make sure that our relationship with the Lord is right where it ought to be. You know, the old preachers used to talk about getting right with God. Well, this is what the Bible tells us about writing our relationship with the Lord. The first thing is this. It begins with a real appreciation of our relationship with God. Now, appreciation, you know, we use that word in the industry that deals with diamonds and bonds and gold about things that are growing in value. Appreciation means we learn to value and that value is something that grows. A new appreciation of our relationship with God means that we realize the importance of that one-on-one kind of intimacy that we have with the Lord. Several years ago, many years ago, there was a study that was done 76 years long with 724 men from Boston, Massachusetts. Now, these men were chosen to be in this study. It lasted for like 76 years. And then when some of them began dying, they actually brought in their children. There are about 2,000 of their children that are in this study. And the study was basically trying to determine what is it that makes life fulfilling? What is it that makes life enriched and people feel motivated? Most of the men that were in that study had as their goal to become rich or to become famous. Does that sound familiar? I mean, that's kind of the way we are today. But as they went through this study, and they began looking at how these men had come out, and some of them really came out good. One of them was a president of the United States. And yet, when they got to the very end, they found out that, guess what? It wasn't fame, and it wasn't money. But rather, the ones that they really self-reported and Reflected in their lives, this great depth of richness and fulfillment and satisfaction were the ones whose relationships were the most solid, the deepest, and the most profound with those who were around them. You see, the most significant distinction between the Christian understanding of God compared to other world religions is that one word, relationship. It is the fact that we have a one-on-one, face-to-face relationship with the Lord. Listen to what Moses says in his plea to God in verse 9. He said, now, Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. In other words, Moses saw this value of not just having a Ten Commandments, a list of do's and don'ts, but rather having the very God who has created the world to walk alongside us, to be in that intimate kind of relationship. You know, we, we Susan and I spent a number of years in, uh, in amongst the people of the Middle East in Islam, where God, Allah, is unknown and really unknowable. I, I was talking to Jim Thorington this morning as we were preparing for the service, and I said, Jim, why don't you help me do something because I want to I want to help the folks to understand this. In Islam, there is this belief that God has 100 names, but only 99 names are known to man. And it, and, and one of my friends, Ahmed, said, you know, This is such an important thing that God has actually given us on the palms of our hands the 99 names of God. And he held out his palms, and he put them beside mine, and he said, this is what you see if you look at the palms of your hands. Now, obviously, my hands are not that dirty, but I wrote on top of those lifelines, we call them. And the interesting thing is this. On the left-hand side, that upside-down V in the 1 is actually the number 81 in Arabic. On the right-hand side, that 1 in the V is the number 18. 81 and 18 is how many? 99. 99. Now, if you look at your palm, your palm will look exactly like that, minus the ink. And they would say to us, you see, this is so important that God has actually written the fact that we have 99 names on our palms. And we would take this as missionaries, and we would say, "What's the 100th name?" And they said, "It's unknown and unknowable." And we would say, "You know what? We know the 99th name of God, and it is the name Father. Islam does never, never calls God Father, because there is no relationship. There is no intimacy. And yet we know that God is to us that father, the father of the prodigal son, which is really the parable of the waiting father who waits for the son to come home from that life that has been wasted. God is always, even when we get off track, there to catch us, to help us, to, to instill in us that relationship that it is he alone that can make. Because you see with God, There is this growing understanding of our relationship with him that the Israelites were going through there in the desert. Verses 6 and 7 says this, that after God had given the commandments to Moses, he said, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God proclaimed, this is who I am. This is the foundation of our relationship. Think for a moment what a great wedding vow that would be if we were to say that to one another. And see, that's really kind of the point. Because what was happening here with the Ten Commandments was that God was entering into something that we call a covenant relationship. Because you see, getting it right, getting that relationship right with God means that the God, it just grows through an acknowledgement of our obligation to God, which basically means that we live in a covenant relationship with the Lord. I was amazed years ago, When we did a little journey through France and stayed for a month in a village, and Susan and I were trying to learn French during that time, and and it was horrible. We never learned it. But we did learn something, that in France there are seven different kinds of marriages. I mean, it goes all the way from concubine through contractual, through residential, all the way to the traditional kind of marriage. But now Scripture only recognizes one, And that is the covenant relationship between a man and a woman, which is based upon that covenant relationship that we have with God. It is a relationship, now listen to this, that depends upon the faithfulness of only one person. Because you see, just like in a marriage, if you go into a marriage and you say this marriage depends upon the faithfulness of one person, it's, it's me being faithful to my wife. But your wife is saying it depends on the faithfulness of one person, it is me being faithful to my husband. It's not a contract where it says, well, if he messes up, then I can mess up. You see, when we come into that covenant relationship with God, it is God who takes the responsibility of making that relationship with us. He is the one that is responsible. He makes that covenant with us. Listen to what it says in in Exodus 34, verse 10. God said, and he said, behold, I am making a covenant. Who is? God is. I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I am. Will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. That's God being faithful in the covenant that He establishes with us. When we're right with God in that covenant relationship, it really is that dependence upon God. The Sabbath today is actually a continual reminder of our dependence upon him. Think about that. Among the Ten Commandments that God gave, one of them always seems strange to me. You know, keeping the Sabbath. You're going to keep the Sabbath. And God repeats that here in Exodus 34. He says, six days shall you work, but on the seventh you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest time you shall rest. Now, why is that in there? Why is this commandment about resting on the Sabbath and among all these other commands about things that we're supposed to do. Well, it's because it underscores the fact that it is really God who is working in and through us, among us, undergirding us, because he has taken the responsibility in the covenant. Hebrews in the fourth chapter gives us the greatest insight into this, the context for understanding God's attention. You know this verse. It's 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 funny. It's it's not the old blue law where you walk into. Some of y'all remember the old blue law? You know, you walk into a pharmacy and there's things you can't touch back, you know, in the, in the old day. This is God's law that tells us what God has opened up for us. And it is this. He says in Hebrews, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered into God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his You see, when you enter into that covenant, it is a recognition that it all depends upon the Lord. And it is the Lord who works in our lives to accomplish His will. Getting right with God means recognizing that obligation to enter into His rest. And the last thing is this, getting right with God results in a transformation of our lives to be more and more like God. To be more and more like God. You know, my son, when he was at Southeastern Seminary, he went to a church. Uh, we went up to visit him. He introduced us to the congregation. Um, the name of the church was Imago Day. Imago Day. Do you know what Imago Day means? Image of God. Now, what was interesting is that not only did they have a church named that, but all the young people in that church wore t shirts around that said that. So my son had this t shirt on that said, Image of God. And I thought, man, that's a, that's a big statement, isn't it? Because when you wear a T-shirt around, just imagine if you had that in English, image of God. But doesn't the Bible tell us that that's exactly what we are supposed to be? You know, didn't Paul say in First Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ? That when people see us, there is to be that, that understanding on their part that they're seeing someone whose life has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot deny that we have been called to be a people who are set apart. In the the early church, in the the book of Acts, in the fourth chapter, it says that the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when they saw the disciples, these fishermen, these uneducated men, these men who weren't of letter, it says, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common, that they were astonished, and they recognized what? That they had been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus for three years. There was that intimate relationship, and guess what? During all that time, their life was being transformed. That didn't just start with the New Testament, As a matter of fact, if you go all the way back to Exodus 7-1, you hear the Lord saying to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. That is to say when people see us, they need to see that we have been transformed so that our life reflects more and more what it means to be like God, a follower of Jesus Christ. When we are right with God, Not only are we transformed through this covenant relationship, but those around us are given the opportunity to experience God for themselves. To have, just as Israel did, to have that second and third and even fourth opportunity to know the Lord. You know, years ago, when I was studying at Southwestern Seminary, I had a professor who preached probably one of the best sermons I've ever heard. Jim Cooley's not here, so don't tell him I said that, okay? But it was one of the best sermons I think i ever heard. And I remember him talking about something that happened in Fort Worth all the time. It was the Southwest Livestock and Fat Stock Show, kind of like a rodeo. And the interesting thing about that rodeo is that, you know, as the fighters, as the riders, I'm sorry, the riders are out there and they're riding the bulls, there were always in the arena at the same time these rodeo clowns. And they looked ridiculous. You know, they'd have these wide, big old pants on and the floppy hat and the big feet. And they'd be doing all kinds of antics out there. But the moment that a rider fell from the bull you realize that their job was one that was deadly serious. They were the ones who were distracting the bull, who were waving their arms and trying to get it away from the rider so that that rider would have the safety of a second chance. And I remember he said at that point in his sermon, that's what God has called us to be. The Bible says we are fools for Christ's sake. But it is so that those around us have that opportunity for a second chance. To know God, to be known by Him, and to experience a life that has been transformed. You're here this morning, and you may be looking for a second chance. Something that God has always wanted to do in your life, and you've just sort of held him off at hand's distance, you just arm's length haven't been willing to let the Lord do what He wants to do in your life. There may be some decision you need to make this morning in regard to that. Perhaps it is to know the Lord Jesus Christ for the very first time as Lord and Savior, to let your life be transformed, to enter into that covenant. be maybe God's been dealing with you about some other matter, perhaps finding a church home, a place to, for a time or a long time or a short time, just to call your church home. This morning, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation, and in My word to you would be to simply listen to the word of the Lord in your heart. Whatever God tells you to do, to be faithful this morning and following his word. Let's stand together as we sing, as we respond to the Lord. It has been good to be in the Lord's house this day. We are so grateful for those of you who are visiting with us and uh, grateful for those of you who aren't. All the rest of you. We're glad that you're here. We pray God blesses you in this day. Now remember tonight uh, we have a five uh, o'clock service uh, and Dr. Larry Bird is going to be preaching this evening. And so I know you want to come and to be a part of that. And uh, as you go from this place, just remember, as someone said, you know, to everybody that sees you, you either look like a sheep or a shepherd. You're either the one that is following the Lord or you're the one that they're kind of following. They're looking at you and thinking about you as someone who will lead them to Christ. And so I hope that you're faithful in both the sheep and shepherd role God's given us. Let's pray and then we'll sing one more song and we'll be dismissed. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful this day to be a part of this fellowship, Lord, and to be a part of this relationship that goes uh, beyond, Lord, our primary relationship with you to extend to all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, to be a part of this family of God. Lord, bless us, I pray, in this day as we go from here, Lord, that we'll be faithful and really showing forth the love of Christ to those who are around us. That, Father, others, because of your work, your faithfulness, but Father, through our lives would enter into that covenant relationship that you would be honored and glorified. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.